turn to me, if you will, and follow along as I read from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and as you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. It is such a a privilege to get to be with you this morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. I like to say at the, the beginning of the message how important godly fathers are to this world. This world is, is quite frankly, desperate for godly fathers and godly husbands. I officiated a wedding weeks ago on June the 4th, and uh, we had this couple, my wife and I, over to our house during their engagement season, and which is pretty common, you know, and we enjoyed their company. We got to ask them a lot of questions about their hopes and dreams, you know, for their marriage, for family, for life together. We got to ask about their upbringing as well. And I will say this is, you know, I've officiated a number of weddings and I've, I've gotten to sit down with a number of couples, but this is the first time that I've ever had a young man sitting in my living room and speak of his father in a way where, I mean, every word as he's describing that relationship, tears were filling his eyes and beginning to run down his cheek. It was a really sweet moment. It touched my heart. He, he went on and on about how he had an earthly father who was not perfect, none are, but one that directed him to the Lord Jesus Christ so that he could be reconciled to his heavenly father, adopted into his family, cared for, protected, loved. It touched us. It spurred us on as a couple to really think critically and about how we can love my son, Archie, and, and raise him up to be a godly young man and, and to know the love of God the Father. And so I pray that this afternoon would be a time of great encouragement for you dads. I pray that this afternoon would be a time of celebration. I pray that you would get affirmation for the ways that you have demonstrated Christ-likeness as you in all humility and imperfectly seek to lead and love your families. I really do. I pray that. This morning, what I'd like to do is, is reflect on something, on a, a familiar passage for many. I want to be reminded of something that I'm very confident many of us in this room are aware of. That's why it's a reminder. But I want to be reminded of God's calling on the life of every Christian father. What makes for a godly father? Men, second alone to your marriage, being a father is the greatest ministry that God will ever entrust to you, ever. 
There is nothing out there. There's no ministry opportunity out there that comes close to the ministry of your marriage and to your ministry to your children as a father. God loves to do incredible, lasting, life-changing, eternally impactful things through the faithful, simple embrace of the roles that he has assigned to us as men and women. So what has God called us to engage in as godly fathers? Look at Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we find ourselves this morning in the second half of the letter to the Ephesians. And Paul is in the midst of delivering these, what are called household codes. It's essentially how we are to relate to one another in our, in our homes as a family. And he's just laid out previously how a husband and a wife are to relate to one another in love and respect. He's laid out how children are to relate to their parents. So kids, listen to me for a second. In honor and obedience. And see, it's not just obedience on the outside, like just doing what they say. It's actually obeying from the heart. It's obeying in love for your father and for your mother. That is the best way you could celebrate your father today on Father's Day and your mother on Mother's Day when that comes back around. But now, right here, in this one verse, he speaks to parents' role towards their children generally and the father's role towards their children specifically. Although it says fathers here as it opens up in verse 4, that word pateras is often translated and understood as parents. So again, in a general sense, this is a message to parents, to all parents, working together and discipling your children. But in a more specific way, the, the husband and the father, being the head of the home, being the leader of the household, they're ultimately responsible and accountable to God for how they lovingly lead their wives and their children, how they disciple the little ones in their home. Parents in general, and, and fathers in particular, are the, the primary disciple makers of their children. Not the only ones that are helping disciple your children, but the primary ones. And essentially what Paul's getting at here in one verse are two essential components for godly fathers to embrace in their ministry at home. This is not an exhaustive list. Two components. Now, there's more that could be said than what I'm going to say this morning. I'm giving you a, a warning. And yet, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul gives us these two commands for daddies today. And the first one is a negative command. It's a prohibition. The second is a positive command. So I want to look at the negative command first. And, and here's my first point. Godly fathers don't discourage their children. Godly fathers don't discourage their children. It's going to happen. But godly fathers don't want to discourage their children. That's not their aim. Look at verse 4a. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And whenever the scripture says, you must do this or you must not do this, you should not do this, we've got to identify and define what this is, right? I think I've said that before when I, when I visited here. So what does it mean to provoke our children to anger? 
Essentially, it just means it's a repeated, ongoing pattern of treatment of our child that gradually builds up this deep-seated resentment and anger which boils over into outward disobedience, hostility, etc., willful rebellion. In short, to kind of put it in modern terms, to provoke your child to anger is to discourage them or to poke their buttons. You know what I'm talking about, poking buttons? We all, especially in a home, we know how to poke one another's buttons. We know exactly which buttons to press for each one of the members in our home when we want to get under their skin and irritate them. And so we've all got to be careful on this front not to provoke one another to anger. But what does it look like practically to discourage a child or to provoke them to anger? I'm going to quickly as possible run through 10 things that came to my mind this week. That, that can provoke a child to anger. Again, not an exhaustive list. There's more, but let's run through it quickly. Number one, having too much oversight over a child. This is what you call a helicopter parent. You've heard of that term, right? It's just constantly hovering, kind of smothering a child, no breathing room. It's a leash that's so short it's connected to the handle. Overly restricting where a child can go, what they can do, will cause some resentment. It will cause them to be provoked to anger. We have to extend trust to our children a little bit at a time as appropriate for each child, right? But then there's a flip side. So this is the second way you could provoke a child to anger, discourage them unnecessarily, unintentionally. Having not enough oversight over a child. This is what I call the airplane parent. They're not hovering. They've gotten off on on an airplane, on a jet. They've flown away. There's this massive chasm between the parent and the child. And that distance, in that distance, the child feels like dad doesn't really care where I am or what I'm doing. So what does it even matter? I'm just going to do whatever I want, whatever feels good. And so we've got to be on guard against both of these things. A child who has an airplane parent it causes them to be not just discouraged, but to feel like they're worthless, that they're not loved. We've got to be cautious on that. Number three, being what I call a snowplower parent. Now listen up. This is Texas, and y'all know I'm from North Carolina, if you read my bio, and so you know we have more snowplowers than you. You haven't seen, y'all seen the movies? You've seen the snowplowers in the movies that push the snow and the ice off the streets so that mom and dad can get to work, and and so that kids can go to school. But here's the deal. You haven't seen a snowplower, but you understand what they do. They plow away all the debris and all the obstacles, and that is what a parent does when they are constantly paving the way for a child and preventing the child from experiencing any adversity, any difficulty, any hardship, any heartbreak, any skin knees whatsoever. We can't do that. Because ultimately what that will do in the long run is it may cause, obviously, our our child, it'll stunt their growth and maturity. I mean, God gives us trials for our endurance, right, that we'd grow up. But later on in the child's adulthood, they may look back on their childhood with a snowplower parent and go, man, a little resentment here, a little bitterness, because now I'm, I'm entering into real life, and it's hard living in a broken, fallen world. It is. So we can't be snowplower parents. At that wedding on June 4th, I got to sit with a dad 
uh, who's a good friend of mine, and he shared with me a story of how he taught his daughter to ride a bike. Step one, kindly invite your wife to go inside, just for the moment. Look, you can be out there if you want, okay? But he, he was inviting her to do that, and she said, I'm going inside. I don't want to see this. Step two, let your daughter try to ride the bike. Step three, what happened? She fell, skin knee, few tears, but then he said, Arch, she was up and riding the bike for months before any of the boys in the neighborhood. You've got to allow some bumps and bruises. Number four, showing favoritism to one child over another. We actually see this in the Bible in Genesis 25, verse 27 through 28. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Think about this. Isaac loved Esau. He was like the all-state football and track star, okay? Rebekah loved Jacob. Why? She was with him in the kitchen preparing meals. This guy was a culinary art guy, okay? And the problem is, if we show favoritism to one child over the other, we forget they're little humans. They're very perceptive. They can pick up on that. But dads, we need to be even more cautious because even when you're not, when you're like, look, I, I come to your musicals and I, I come to the art galleries with your work on the wall. I, I come to the football games. I'm not, there is no partiality. I love you both. I'm so proud. I'm glad you're different. Even when that's the case, a child can feel insecurities just because they don't have this gift or they don't have this one. And so we just need to be cautious not to provoke them to anger and to affirm them that we love them and we are proud of them. Number five, pushing achievement beyond reasonable, reasonable bounds. Pushing achievement beyond reasonable bounds. I was really grateful. I grew up in a home, two educators, okay, headmaster and a teacher for parents. And they never said, you must get this grade. And if you don't get this grade, we're not proud of you. We're disowning you, okay? It was never like that. But they did say this, you must work hard in school. You must give it the very best that you can. And we'll discuss the grades as we go along. When I slacked off, they let me know. But when I got into sophomore chemistry and I was drowning, they understood. That's not Arch's gift, okay? Math and science were not my thing. And so they helped me as much as they could. They encouraged me. I just, had, I just needed to pass. That's how bad it was, friends. So that is what we need to do. We don't need to push achievement beyond the bounds. We do need to encourage them to work heartily as for the Lord and not man. Number six, withholding affirmation. I, I touched on this a little earlier, but this is really crucial, not just for raising children, but for our, our spouse. We need to affirm and encourage our spouse and our children. We need our children to hear us encouraging our spouse, and we need to hear our spouse encouraging our children. We need to be a part of an uh, encouraging culture in our homes, an affirming culture. There's obviously a ditch on the other side of the road, okay? And that's, we give out all these free trophies, and, and that is a problem too. But wisdom would have us walk down where there's encouragement and where necessary, there's critique. Number seven, failing to ever make personal sacrifices for your children. 
Fathers, this is a big one. This, this is huge, actually. If we don't ever make personal sacrifices, and there's so many sacrifices that fathers have to make for their families, but if our children don't see them at times, and we're just doing them behind the scenes, that can cause resentment as well. It can make a child feel like they're just an intrusion. They're unwanted. They're in your way. And I think it's so important to just remember the gospel in this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever puts their faith in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It's the sacrifice of a father giving up his son to die on the cross that causes our love for God the Father and God the Son to soar. Number eight, you can discourage your child by not allowing the child to grow up at a normal pace. A normal pace. The goal for our children is to raise them up to be siblings in Christ with us. The goal for our children is to raise them up to be God, men of God and women of God. Godly men, godly women. But we have to be patient with our children just as much as we appreciate the patience of God the Father with us as his children in growing in maturity. And if we are constantly chiding our children or we're saying, stop acting like a baby, stop being childish, especially in public, that can cause resentment in a child's heart. That can crush a child's heart. So we just need to be cautious and careful because when we speak to one another and we say, you're childish, or why aren't you respectful to me, to our wives, or why aren't you more romantic, you're not romantic to our husbands, is that going to encourage greater romanticness? Is it going to encourage greater respect? Is it going to encourage them to grow in maturity? It's not. It just reaffirms and reinforces those negative aspects of our character. So we need to help our children grow up at a normal pace and not expect them to be 30 when they're 13. Using love as a tool of reward or punishments. Number nine. Using love as a tool of reward or punishment. So this is basically granting a child love when they're good. I love you when you're good. But when they're bad, being cold. Withholding love. And to be honest, this happens sometimes subconsciously. Like we're not trying to do this, but it's very easy to do naturally, which is why we need to depend on the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit and our parenting. And number 10, and this is a heavy one, but physical and verbal abuse. And I know this, this hits home for some of us in this room. And so I just want to say two things on this. Number one, God has great compassion on victims who have endured abuse. Justice belongs to the Lord. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And he cares. He is compassionate. But number two, I want to say this, that there's mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ for those who have been abusive. If they would turn and confess their sin to the Lord and take refuge in the blood of Christ through genuine repentance and faith. Okay, I know that's heavy. I know that's a long list. And the sad part is there's more I could say on that, right? There's a lot of ways to provoke our children to anger. There's a lot of different ways that we could discourage our children. So we now know how not to parent. Fantastic. Well, how do we parent? What do we do? If we don't discourage, then what do we do? I think if we're honest with ourselves, 
Just this one aspect of this verse, this first half, it's like walking a tightrope. I mean, it's so easy to discourage a child, unintentionally even. It's like walking on eggshells. And so as imperfect fathers and parents, we need to acknowledge the fact, what we, we discussed earlier, we sin. We're going to fail at times. We're not perfect parents. God the Father gets all the glory for being a perfect father. And so what can we do reactively when we have fallen short of the glory of God in our parenting? Well, we look to God, we receive his mercy and forgiveness in Christ, and then we model humility. We confess to our kids, hey, daddy, daddy made a mistake. He sinned. Will you forgive me? Hey, mom, mommy made a mistake. Will you, will you forgive me? I could have done that better. I could have said that differently. But that's reactive to failure. How can we be proactive and not discouraging our children? Proactively, the best thing we can do as fathers and as parents is this. Number one, pray for God's wisdom daily. We need it. We need it for every decision in parenting and in life, big and small. Secondly, seek out God's wisdom daily in his word. I had coffee with Andy Lai this past week. It was such a joy. And he was just expressing to me how much he loved the Proverbs and how practical and helpful they are in his parenting at home. We need to pray for it. We need to seek it out. It's there. It's in the word. So we're not to discourage our children. What are we to do? We're to disciple our children. Godly fathers, point two, disciple their children. Look at verse 4b. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now the second half of this verse starts with the word but. Meaning, this is a coordinating conjunction. It's connecting the first part, don't discourage, to the second part of saying what to do instead. It's saying we are to bring them up through discipleship instead of tearing them down in discouragement. Christian discipleship is starting in the home. It is constructive, not destructive. That, that seems obvious. But I think the language here is very, very interesting because the word to bring them up is not an architectural term. It's a nutritional term. Ektrefo means to nourish, nurture, cherish, and train. Nutritional. We, what are we to do with our children? We are to give them what they need. They need food for their bodies, no doubt. We're to take them from milk to meat. We're to take them from spiritual milk to spiritual meat in discipleship. But it's so interesting when you think about this. We're to nourish them with the word of God. We're to feed it to them. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone. He lives on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So there's where the instruction piece comes in. But we're to do this in a loving way, in a way that's viewing them as not these little children of wrath, as rebels in your home, but as a heritage from the Lord, a, a reward, a gift that you're to point to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might be saved and follow him. We're to train them. We're to give them training, direction and correction at times when they've gotten off the path. So instruction and discipline are crucially important to Christian discipleship. But I think that the ironic thing here 
is that at face value, it might seem like, well, if I discipline my child, or if I'm teaching my child, I mean, won't that, that provoke them to anger? Like, don't they, I, I don't meet a lot of kids who love to learn, okay? And if, and if you do kids, that's amazing, and you should, okay? But I wouldn't that way, and I wish I had been. I'd be a lot smarter today. But look, we need to instruct them and discipline them. We need to do it with love in our hearts, because the reality is this. They need it. And there's a lie in our world that, well, don't push Jesus too much on your kids. Don't push them away from Jesus. Friends, too much exposure to the word of God, the things of God, is going to push our children away from God? That's crazy. That's not true. The truth is, our little ones, unsaved children, they are already separated from God. They're as far from God as as they could be. And so they need us to to show them their need for Christ. They're they're sinners, just like you and your spouse. And and so we need them to to see their need for Christ. But we also need them to see how Christ came to meet their need on the cross. He paid for their sin in full. And he's resurrected from the dead victorious. Bonhoeffer once said this. He said, It is from God that parents receive their children... And then he said, it is to God that they in turn ought to lead their children. We're to bring them up. We're to train them up. Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, Proverbs as a literary form are not direct promises, but they do showcase, while it's not a guarantee, the general principle that if we point our people, our children to the Lord, that in their old age they will not have departed from it. We are to disciple them no matter what the outcome is. Parents, this is a call to obedience. Train up your child in the way he should go. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This training is discipleship. Two-sided coin, instruction and discipline both to be carried out in love. So I want to focus in on instruction, then we'll move on to discipline. Paul makes it very clear what the content of our instruction is. We're not writing up the curriculum ourselves. It is the Word of God. He says, bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. Do you see that? 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for what? For teaching. For reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So teaching children the scriptures, all the scriptures, is one of the primary roles of a father and of parents. And what's the fruit of training them and pointing them, instructing them in the scriptures? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, The scriptures have the power to make them wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. That's a good starting point. 2 Timothy 3.17 says that teaching our children the scriptures will thoroughly equip them to do every good work. Ephesians 6.10-11 says that it will prepare them to withstand the schemes of the devil. And mom and dad, listen to me. The schemes of the devil when you're not there, when your child is alone, And the devil is preying on them to lead them astray. The instruction yesterday, today, and tomorrow 
are to be accumulative so that their antennas can go up and go, that doesn't seem right. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to listen to my friend who's maybe leading me astray in this moment. They're going to stay rooted in the truth of God's word. And the devil will flee from them. According to Ephesians 4.14, it will prepare our children to stay anchored in the midst of the great winds and the waves of the empty and deceptive philosophies and ideologies of this godless world, which are being taught through godless men and godless women to indoctrinate our children into a secular worldview and a value system that is not of God. 1 Peter 3.15 says that by instructing them in the scriptures, dads, you will prepare them to give an answer to anyone who asks them questions like, why is your life so different than mine? Questions like, why do you have hope in the midst of an increasingly depressed, suicidal, and hopeless youth culture? You're preparing them for these moments. You're preparing them for a lifetime. We cannot quantify the value or the importance. We cannot put a dollar sign on how vital it is that fathers lead the way alongside their wives in instructing their children with the Word of God. Deuteronomy 6, we read it earlier. This is God addressing the people of Israel through Moses. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he says this, listen, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and and all your might. And these words that I command you today, parents, shall be on your heart. And so this is so significant because what it's saying is the priority of discipleship starts with you and I as parents knowing God, not just the facts, but knowing him intimately by meditating on his word daily. And a healthy disciple will multiply healthy disciples. The text continues in verse seven. Having been transformed by the word of God, ourselves and prayer in a quiet place in our home, early in the morning, we are to carry out everything we've seen, everything we've cherished, everything we've loved. We're to speak of it. We're to sing of it. We've meditated on it. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, all the time. You're not limited. And I think a great starting point is having family worship in our homes. Here's a simple model for family worship. Get a Bible. Check. Read the Bible. Big or small portions. Maybe start small and build. Pray in light of what you've seen in that Bible. And then sing. Sing a song of praise to God together as a family. That's family worship. You can can bring in a, a, a healthy, good, sound doctrine catechism as well. Have questions and answers to go through one at a time. Consistency is important. But what I want you to see is that while we can have those in place, we're not limited to that. We can talk of the things of God all the time, as much as we want. And when you talk of the things of God from a wellspring of love for God, your children are going to listen. 
Listen to how Paul prays in Philippians 1.9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And so what I want you to see in this prayer even is that love is the fruit of truth being sown in the hearts and minds of our children and ourselves as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to instruct them. We're also to discipline them. So I want to shift gears and look at that aspect of our role as fathers. Discipline is simply the administration of a punishment or consequence for disobeying. That's all it is. The Bible reserves very strong language for those who instruct, but they never discipline their children. This is what Proverbs 13, 24 says. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So here we do have a biblical argument for spanking, but biblical spanking is anchored in love. It's full of self-control, and it's not abusive. And by the way, you're going to hear me say this later, there's not a one-size-fits-all for discipline in our homes. We have to prayerfully determine with each child at different ages and stages what is an appropriate form of discipline. And we can work together as a community to talk through those things. But Proverbs 23, 13 says this, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from shale. To withhold discipline from a child can actually lead to their greater harm and potentially even their death. When I was a young boy growing up in Little Rock, Arkansas, we had a ton of woods behind our house. And my, my younger brother and I would go back into the woods and we'd go deep into the woods. And I'm just going to say right now, we may have had a longer leash than we should have, okay? Deep in the woods. And when we went deep and back to the left, you know what we found? This mountain. Not really, but it was a big hill. It was a mountain to us. And we would go down this hill, and it was just red clay, but there was quartz crystals in this hill. And so we're shimmying down the mountain, and we're, we're just putting stones left and right in our pockets, and we're like, this is awesome. They're like diamonds to us in the rough. At the bottom of that hill, though, was a major, busy road. Long leash, okay? Just saying. If we had stumbled for a moment and tumbled down that hill, it's over. Fortunately, we had only done this a handful of times when my grandmother happened to be driving down the road. She sees two fools on the side of the hill, and she goes, who are these foolish children? Those are my grandchildren. So she's freaking out, and she turns the car over to the side of the road, and she says, does your mother know that you're up here? To which we said, yes, she does. She did not. And she proceeded to say, I'm going straight to your house and you better be there when I get there. Well, we, we climbed up the hill and we beat her on foot and she was driving a car fast. We get home and we received some discipline for our foolishness. We knew better. But the point is the appropriate and consistent discipline now with the discomfort not only for the child, but for you. I mean, who likes disciplining a child? That could save them from disaster. That could save them from death. And so we don't need to neglect instruction or discipline. We need to do them both in love. 
but the punishment has to match the crime, okay? If you were going five miles over the speed limit and the cop pulled you over and said, that'll be the death penalty, you'd say, excuse me? That's ridiculous. That's it. That's not just. And so we need to be really serious and thoughtful and reflective and pray for God's wisdom with taking the factor the age of your child, the temperament of your child. They're going to need different forms of discipline. I'll give you an example. Rebecca and I, I got permission to share this. We weren't readers growing up, right? We didn't like to read, but our siblings did. My brother Jeff, her brother Sarah loved to read. So a punishment for us would be, here's five books. You got to read these tonight. A punishment for our siblings would have been, give me the five books that you love so much. There's a pain point in discipline, but it can come in many different forms. But it's got to be in place, and it's got to be appropriate. Not a one-size-fits-all. Well, godly fathers are not to discourage their children. They're to disciple their children. How are they to disciple their children? Through the instruction in the Word of God and discipline that is appropriate and godly. I'm running out of time. And so here's my third and final point this morning. Godly fathers are to do all of this by keeping their eyes on God the Father. We're to seek to imitate God the Father as godly fathers. There is only one perfect Father, God the Father, and He gets all the glory. But with our eyes on Him, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next as husbands, as wives, as fathers, as mothers, as obedient children. Our Father in heaven does not desire to discourage us as his children in Christ. He doesn't go out of his way to discourage us. He does not seek to poke our buttons or provoke us to anger. He promises to provide for us, Matthew 6, and he follows through. He promises to protect us, Psalm 46, and he follows through. He promises that he'll never leave or abandon us and he follows through. He gives us freedom to make some decisions that will lead to rewards or consequences, and he follows through. He promises never to stop loving us in Jesus, and he will follow through. He doesn't provoke us to anger. He provides us with peace. He's a good father. Our father disciplines us. He instructs us Friends, he has not withheld any good thing from us. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may do all the words of his law. He's given us instruction. It's fully furnished. It's finished. The canon's closed. We have all that we need. Friends, we have all that we need. All necessary instruction to be made wise for salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All the instruction necessary to grow in godliness over the course of our lives as children, as spouses, as parents. All the instruction necessary to righteously navigate life in a fallen and broken world before Christ returns and restores all things. All the instruction necessary. He disciplines us Psalm 94, 12, blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Psalm 119, 67, before I was afflicted through discipline, I went astray to the hill. But 
now I keep your word. Proverbs 3.11 and 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Why? For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. Hebrews 12.9, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of lights, of spirits, and live? His discipline's leading us to life, not death. And then he says this, they, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. I love this. It's saying, dads, we're just doing the best we can. Finite, imperfect fathers, but we're doing the best we can as seems best to us prayerfully. But he disciplines us, all his children. How? For our good. Why? That we may share in his holiness. For at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The application this morning is simple. If you are here and you are a father and you have put your faith in Christ, you are to look to God the Father in heaven. You're to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, how you've been loved in Christ. You're to be discipled by him, disciplined and instructed by him. And you're to imitate him as best as you can. If you're here this morning and you're not a father or mother, encourage the fathers and mothers in this congregation and support their efforts by being engaged in discipleship as a spiritual parent for this next generation. Let's pray. Fathers, we pray for all the fathers in this room. We pray, God, that you would help them to grow in godliness. Father in heaven, we thank you for adopting us into the family of God through Christ. We thank you for your steadfast love for us, for never leaving or forsaking us. We thank you for your faithful instruction and discipline of us. We pray, God, that you would raise up godly fathers in this congregation who by your grace will raise up godly fathers. Amen.